There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Thanks, everyone, who's donated and taken part in our little heritage fundraiser. We're, we're looking to raise money for museums, heritage sites, archives all around the world that are suffering uh, from terrible loss of revenue at the moment. Go to historyhit.com slash heritage to donate and take the Heritage Challenge where you read out a, a letter, a diary, a primary source. There's been some great ones so far. Uh, hashtag Save Our Heritage, check them out, uh, and then nominate people to do it. But the main thing is, it'd be great if you could donate. Thank you very much. In this episode of Downstone's History Hit, we've got Clifford Williamson. He's a lecturer at uh, Bath Spa University. He came on to directly talk about how pandemics throughout history have changed society. Um, we, we, you know, there's a lot of hot takes at the moment about how the Black Death ended feudalism, which is one that medieval historians, uh, it's, it kind of makes their head fall off. It's like if you ask a physicist if mass is constant in all dimensions. I don't understand why that does make physicists explode. But I do understand why medieval historians find the concept of feudalism and its ending by the Black Death in the 14th century deeply problematic. So uh, this is a podcast to help us think about actually what the effects of these pandemics have been throughout history, how our world may change as a result of what we're experiencing at the moment. You can go watch some beautiful TV if you want. History Hit TV, keep you busy during the pandemic. It's like a Netflix for history. Lots of documentaries on there, lots of audio. Just go to uh, historyhit.tv. We've had a deal on to get people through the lockdown. It looks like it might be extended. So we've got an, an even better deal now. If you use the code POD3, P-O-D-3, this offer will be available for the next few days. You'll get a month for free. And then your first three months, just one pound, euro or dollar. So this is now four months for just three pound, euros or dollars in all. I mean, which is going to take us to the end of the lockdown, I think. I hope. Um, so please, please uh, head over to History Hit TV and use the code POD3. In the meantime, everyone, enjoy Clifford Williams. Cliff, thank you very much for coming on this History Hit Live. Let's get started. First of all, how do we judge what a pandemic is looking back through history? How should we define them? They have a, an academic and medical definition, which is the mass outbreaks, simultaneous outbreaks of a single infectious disease strain uh, across a significant geographical part of the globe. And are they regular occurrences? They are more regular uh, and more experienced more by, you know, what are regarded as underdeveloped countries. But for the experience of the United Kingdom, it used to be fairly commonplace until we get into the second half of the 20th century, where the, the so-called therapeutic revolution takes place uh, and there's greater vaccination and treatment of infectious diseases. So there's a historical memory of them as far as people here in the UK are concerned and, and in the developed world, but they are a far more frequent occurrence in underdeveloped uh, and uh, less developed parts of the world. When did people start realising there was something called a pandemic? I mean, where, is, is it, you know, you look at the, the plague in ancient Athens when it was under siege by the Spartans. When did people start going, no, there is something that's a, a, sort of a, a, a happening in a global sense? 
Well, as the, as the world itself joins up, as there's a greater consciousness that there's other parts uh, of the globe, uh, certainly, uh, certainly from my point of view, it starts with the, the, the first of the great bubonic plague outbreaks, which is during classical times in the uh, Roman Empire. The, the consciousness of this is something which is affecting an entire uh, imperial structure. It's very much uh, brings the, the idea of the interrelatedness of disease and the transmission of disease to uh, the, the institutional and imperial centre. Cliff, cholera is something that it gets talked about a lot in the early modern period. Uh, what, what, tell me about some of the, the, the extraordinary cholera pandemics uh, that break out, say, you know, in the early 19th century. Well, there's a wave of them really going from uh, 1830 through to the, the last significant one, which doesn't really affect the UK is in the 1890s, but the majority of them take place 1830s middle of the 1840s, early 1850s, and then there's a last substantive outbreak in the 1860s. So it is a, a periodic visitation of infectious disease, a very unique, distinctive and deadly infectious disease, which pockmarks quite literally Victorian society. And is that a product of the, these new super cities that are building in, in Victorian Britain at the time, or, or had cholera been around since, since the beginning of time? There had been various types of choleraic diseases um, floating around for, for many, many centuries. However, what seems to have been the catalyst for the Victorian uh, versions of them, or the late Williamite, early Victorian experiences, is a collision of empire and industrialization and urbanization. These three things collide roughly at the same time development of trade links across the world, but also the early uh, explosion of the urban environments, the, the mega cities of Victorian Britain, London being one of the, the major examples, but what all the other in, uh, industrial cities uh, experienced the first choleraic outbreaks almost simultaneously. So it is a, it is a feature, I mean, it could be described as an indicator of industrialization and urbanization, that you get these types of diseases prevalent. And cholera is waterborne, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, of course, it, it takes a little bit of time before there is the scientific evidence when uh, John Snow um, produces his famous maps of London. But he, he was one of the, f the first people to identify its waterborne uh, characteristics. And that, this is controversial, of course, because the dominant theories in relation to disease is still very much built on the uh, miasma theory and other ideas of an evil foul air polluting rather than something which was microscopic in the water and that was passed from person to person through ingesting it. Did people try quarantining and other things to, to overcome cholera? Did they just accept it? And how was John Snow able to influence that behaviour and that response? Well, historically, quarantine uh, was the de facto and default uh, system for dealing with infectious diseases. You basically just hold people up or you expelled them and kept them in a controlled environment 
uh, many parts of the um, many of the cities of the UK had their own lazarettos, as they were referred to. They had their own quarantine area, which they sent plague victims to during the great plagues of the uh, 17th century and before. So it was not uncommon to have quarantining. However, it's not very efficacious once the disease is present in the community. All you're doing is locking it in uh, and presenting it to a, a much wider uh, potential uh, victim pool. So what had to be done was isolating the source of it, which of course is the famous Broad Street pump uh, in uh, central London, uh, isolating the supply itself, offering alternative water supplies, and you know, basically literally overnight transforming the um, status of this particular disease in the city. And it's, a, it's, it's remarkable its simplicity if you consider the centuries in which people have worried and wondered about what is the transmission of disease, to lay down this important foundation about the microscopic nature of infection. We, we've had cholera. The other 19th century disease everyone hears a lot about, they often talk about in the same sentence, is, is, is typhoid. Now, how is that different from cholera and, and when does it appear? Well, it's, it's, it's not dissimilar in some respects in that it has got, uh, it's a person-to-person -person transmission through, well, it's basically through body waste, primarily, and so therefore it's a manifestation of sanitation uh, and the availability of public water supplies. Uh, so it is something which has got some of a similar um, epidemiology to it, although its impact on the body is, is in some respects, there are parallels, but it is, it is also distinctive in the way in which it uh, operates uh, as an infection. It will cause the collapse of the uh, digestive system and you know, the sort of waste systems of your body, uh, which makes it all the more uh, notable. Was it a particularly bad outbreak in, in the mid-19th century? It was again something which was permanently part of the landscape of infectious diseases. This is the era of infectious diseases. This is an era in which there's a, a multiplicity of different types of infections, which based on specific conditions would appear every, every so often, but would never die out. Uh, and they were manifestations of, you know, very simple phenomena. And the most simple one uh, is the lack of adequate clean water supplies, both in terms for drinking and for using for the disposing of human waste uh, at the same time. So it's, they, they are present uh, and they would be, more prevalent uh, at times and in places where the living conditions, the physical conditions and the social conditions are at their weakest. And how does society respond? How, how do they take on the challenge of typhoid? Well, initially quite slowly, because of course there are competing views about how to deal with them. And also in some respects, it's an expensive way to deal with them. Gaining access to a clean water supply, gaining access to a significant sewage system is a major investment at a time when the, the national state is not providing these things and it's dependent upon local authorities. And this is the era of so-called municipal socialism, providing these resources. My own uh, home city of Glasgow, for instance, was in the uh, lead to this when it identified a new supply of clean water at Loch Katrin, which they brought into the city by the, the latter part of the 19th century. Also, there were um, pieces of permissive legislation, police acts, they were known, which allowed for the construction of internal water supplies, particularly internal toilets, to counteract the spread of the disease in what were known as private middens. 
how many people are we talking about that are, that are suffering in these particular? I know you said it's there all the time, but how many in, in these spikes, how many people might it affect? Well, you're, you're talking about, you know, short, sharp outbreaks periodically in which depending upon where they break out, you're talking about thousands of people um, contracting within, within a few months of each other with often a uh, lethality, a, a mortality of over 50 to 60%. So you're talking hundreds and thousands at various times uh, through, through the, the era declining steadily as we get towards the end of the 19th century as these new innovations in public water supplies and public sewage supplies are actually um, acting as really effective countermeasures. So uh, although it doesn't seem large numbers uh, in comparative terms, it's their perpetual and their permanent place in the way in which they can disrupt that becomes most problematic for them. And so the, so the key thing there was it was not a, a vaccine or anything, it was just getting fresh, clean water into people and getting rid of everyone's poo and wing. Well, basically, a very simple, I mean, and it took a long time for people, for the penny to drop, that that was one of the most efficient mechanisms to do so. Uh, um, you know, there was, there was competing theories about the transmission of disease. There were disputes about the resourcing of it. There were complications, particularly when it came to water supplies, because there's two different interests at heart within the water supply. There are those in industry, for instance, who want different types of water so that they can use it for the cleansing and for their industrial practices. And there are those that need it for a clean water supply. So there's a multiple issues going on when we are dealing with the whole question uh, of gaining access to these, what are seen, you know, simple, um, mechanisms to counteract disease. Although the biggest issue to deal with, and this will be the ultimate one, is to change the social conditions that people lived in, in a much larger sense than just simple water supply. So, so you're suggesting, I guess, that the rich people were able to swerve it and go up to their nice clean source of water, but people stuck in the east end of London or whatever, that's, you know, they, they're, they're at a huge disadvantage. Well, it's a perennial feature of the history of infectious diseases. It's, it is it is those with the least means that are the ones that are most affected. Although it's important to realise that these diseases are equal opportunity killers. As we're discovering with the current pandemic, uh, when there is no uh, efficient and, and organised system to, to deal with it, it will affect people significantly. In some respects, one of the reasons why there are changes is because it is affecting the richer people. And so therefore, they've got a vested interest to help those who are the most commonly affected by it. So there's, there's an interesting game of, of politics being played when it comes to the access to these resources. It's self-interest in some respects, as well as efficient sanitary practice. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. 
Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Cliff, the next outbreak we're going to talk about is one I thought was consigned to the Middle Ages. The plague. The plague was back at the end of the 19th century. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's regarded as the third great visitation of the bubonic plague, uh, starting in the early 1890s in China and gradually making its way across the world uh, to, to Europe by the start of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, in the United Kingdom's case, it hadn't seen significant presence of the, of the bubonic plague since the 1660s, since the, you know, the Great Fire of London and all that sort of things. It was a remarkable uh, surprise. And you see that, that phrase being used a lot in the literature of the time, saying, where the hell did this come from? Uh, again, it's meant to be a relic uh, of the medieval experience, not something that modernity uh, has any um, folk memory of. And it was the same plague that we've become familiar with, the buboes, and, the, and, and, and did they have equally high mortality? Well, it depended where you were. And again, this is something which is, a, which is evidence of the different states of uh, sanitation development and social conditions. Uh, where it, it breaks out in places like China and India, its lethality is gigantic. It is taking away more than 50% of the people infected by it. For instance, in Bombay, the victims number in the hundreds of thousands uh, by the time it is burnt out. Uh, and bubonic plague is a permanent feature of the Indian subcontinent throughout the period, but not at this extent. It's the sheer scale and the overwhelming scale of the disease that, that emerges, that transforms it into a global pandemic. And we're really using these terms at the end of the 19th century because the world is getting its act together to create an international system to deal with disease control. Yeah, so what were the responses to this pandemic? And how were they different to its medieval predecessor? Well, as I was saying, it is very much going to be built around the first attempts at international coordinated uh, countermeasures to stop the spread of the infection, but also to deal with it uniformly in terms of what happens once it becomes present in any uh, significant community. That notwithstanding, however, there are significant national uh, di divisions which open up at this time, it not least over finding a way to understand the epidemiology of the disease, 
because rival biochemists are looking for the source of the disease and the best way to counteract it and fight it. And so were governments uh, on the ball? Were they, were they able to take countermeasures to do the kinds of things we expect modern governments to do? Well, it was more, uh, strangely enough, it was more in local contexts that much of the effort took place because it was very much city to city, town to town, uh, because much of the sovereignty over, for instance, ports didn't rest with the state. It rested with the local authority in various ways. And so therefore, this is, again, very much part of the, the pre, uh, you know, sort of national state approach. It is international rules which are applied at the local town and city and port level. Today, we, we talk about uh, the pandemic has, has really, in the space of weeks, moved from one side of the globe to the other. How quickly would that outbreak have been travelling across these local areas? Well, the earliest manifestation of it is around uh, 1894 to 1895. So we're talking less than six years. And in fact, by the time it gets to the Indian subcontinent, it's less than two years before it is present in Europe. Uh, and uh, it reaches the United Kingdom in August of 1900. How many people are we talking uh, that died in this wave of the plague? Well, the, the plague itself, the, the, the actual terms of the pandemic is from 1894 to around 1950. And you're talking over 20 million, 20 to 30 million dead uh, as a result of it globally, as it burns itself out at the start of the 1950s. It's funny because, you know, you read Edwardian literature, you don't read about the plague. I mean, it was just something that would have been on everybody's radar. Well, they would have known it was coming. They would have known it was coming and it would be something which, again, we've kind of talked about this, the sheer novelty of it in some respects, that not having seen this, this infection in the West for such a long time. And of course, the folk memory of it was of its lethality, of its, of its physicality, all those images of the sort of uh, duck-billed physicians going from house to house and bodies uh, you know, deteriorating in place, etc., etc., uh, and so therefore there was a real fear of what the what the the plague would actually mean in terms of its physicality and the way in which it was going to cause disruption. Because remember, uh, and I, I know you know this fine well, when the the plague hit in the 14th century, it brought Europe and much of the Near East to a grinding halt. So there was a there was an anticipation that this was going to be similarly problematic. However, it was a different time. We're at the end of the 19th century. We're at a time when there is a greater consciousness of the nature of disease and also the ability to counteract it and contain it and isolate it very efficiently. I'm sure the outbreak of First World War didn't particularly help the international response there. Well, absolutely. But that time it had really, once again, kind of receded back into its core areas and only sporadically broke out from it. By the time we get to the First World War, uh, they're far more anxious about diseases such as typhus impacting the military more than anything else. And that's where the bulk of the effort on in infectious diseases has moved on to by 1914. So it just, just sort of gradually, just gradually disappeared? It gradually, it kind of burns itself out. Well, once it finds enough victims or it is deprived of victims, it, it, will, it will run its course. But that's notwithstanding, you know, periodic outbreaks. And there's an outbreak in Los Angeles in the 1920s. Uh, so there's, there's, there's the potential for it to, to, to take hold in communities relatively quickly.
But as we get to the, the latter stages of it, the world has moved on in a lot of ways. There is uh, an effective inoculation for it and there's effective treatment for it. Cliff, you are one of the great authorities on this. Reviewing all that stuff we've just talked about, what are the key differences and what are some of the similarities of what we're experiencing now and these pandemics that have gone before? Well, the first thing to say about it is that this is the first time in, in living memory that we have seen this type of pandemic uh, in, the, in the West, in the Northern Hemisphere, if you like. Uh, and so therefore there, is, there, is, um, there are problems in relation to that because our public health system has moved on from the, uh, the concentration on infectious diseases. And in fact, in some respects, our public health system is probably more vulnerable now than it would have been in 1900 to the outbreak of the bubonic plague because there was fever hospitals in 1900. There aren't fever hospitals these days. We're gonna to have to rely upon the infrastructure of the National Health Service as it's currently constituted. Now, of course, there are, there are significant differences in terms of the lethality of the uh, current outbreaks that are taking place. We're talking one to two percent generally, although uh, larger in other, other uh, age groups and genders, of course, because this uh, current coronavirus seems to have a disproportionate effect on men as opposed to women and also the elderly as opposed to the young. And that's a significant difference because historically infectious diseases disproportionately hit children and one of the major causes of infant mortality. So there's a significant difference in that. It's similar in that we've got to anticipate uh, how we are going to respond to the, to the relatively permanent presence of this infection and how we are going to organise around it uh, as part of our, our everyday lives. At the moment, we're in the midst of this, uh, this lockdown. That can't be sustained forever. And also, if it's going to be permanent, there has to be a, a more efficient, a more substantial system, which is going to ensure that we don't return to the, this you know, weird world that we're currently living in, where we only ever see people through the computer screen. Cliff, it's lovely seeing you through the computer screen, so I'm not complaining at all. What, what is your, having looked at these other pandemics and, and, and the way they change the world, have you got any preliminary ideas on the, on the sort of societal change, behavioural changes that, that this might lead to. A lot of people are asking, how is this going to change our everyday lives? Well, I think that anyone who studies the history of pandemics, infectious diseases, come to, to the same idea. These, these outbreaks don't just uh, affect people. They don't just you know, result in disease. They reveal so much about society. They reveal so much about the way in which we are currently organised and whether or not our society is fit for purpose to, to cope with the considerable vulnerabilities which are being exposed by it. The most significant, of course, is because we are now all indoors, uh, the working population has changed quite considerably. Now, people like myself who work in academia, it's a relatively straightforward transition for us. It's a little bit difficult because we're not all that computer savvy, but for significant parts of the population, they are going to be work less and they're therefore going to be economically vulnerable. And so therefore there is a, there is a reflection upon whether or not our welfare and social care systems are fit for purpose to deal with just the general problems of modern poverty and modern living. And I think that's going to be the most revelatory part of it and how much that is therefore going to change the approach of government 
towards the idea uh, of providing for those who are going through temporary periods of unemployment and difficulties. So, as I say, this particular uh, experience is going to be revelatory of where we currently stand. And secondly, it's going to be a test of political will about doing the things that need to be done to remedy it so that people are not left vulnerable. You know, I was speaking just earlier on to one of my PhD students who's renting his home at the moment. He's faced with the problems of potential eviction or the ramping up of his rents that he can't pay for. How is that going to be accommodated? And there are millions of people in rental accommodation at the moment who are faced with these uh, vulnerabilities. This is a real uh, touchstone of where we're at. How is this going to transform our attitude to those that are struggling and the collective responsibility which we have towards them? Can I ask you, as a human as well as an expert, how are you feeling? Are, we, are, we, are you a little optimistic that you're looking at these pandemics in the past? Where are we? What are we talking about? Well, I, I'm optimistic in a lot of respects because in some, we, we have been here before. This is not a unique experience in human history. We have a lot uh, of historical memory to draw upon. We have a lot of resilience to draw upon. We've seen that as the pandemic has, has emerged. There was obviously the panics at the start of it. You know, if you go to the shops and we, we do that on our officially government-approved exercise-slash-shopping trips, we see appropriately social distancing. We see people allowing the elderly and carers and uh, NHS staff to get to the front of the queue when the shops open in the morning. We are seeing significant indicators of civic virtues and civic values coming to the fore. And I think that that's something which is going to lay down a good template for when we get past this, about the future relationship we have with our neighbours, with our friends, with our co-workers, with those whose, whose work at one point was regarded as low value, but who are now at the core and at the heart of ensuring that we are fed and that we are clothed and we're able to get amenities. The other thing, I suppose, is, as you mentioned, it's, it's not killing vast numbers of young people or kill kids, which would be a which perhaps seems callous, but it would be give a whole, another whole element of, of into the tragedy, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, it's it's something which is quite distinctive from previous experiences of infectious diseases and, and, and the infectious diseases which we see in other parts of the world. It, that is, you know, in, if there is a if there's a saving grace in all of this, we we are not seeing the youngest generation being, you know, sort of mown down in a sort of biblical sense by these infections and that, that in itself will, will be important for the recovery process and future developments. I agree Cliff, that's a, a, a strong place to leave it. Thank you very much sir for coming on this episode of History Hit Live on Timeline. It's a pleasure, thank you. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.